Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Thursday, February 2nd, 2023. Uh, there are a couple of anniversaries. On February 1st, 1713, this is the anniversary of a little episode known as The Skirmish at Bendary. Uh, it's really convoluted. I don't want to get into any detail about it. There's a piece uh, on the website if you want to read about it. Basically, uh, the uh, king of Sweden, Charles Twelfth. Uh, had fought a war against the Russians uh, in and lost a battle at Poltava uh, in June of 1709. He lost it so uh, thoroughly that he had to run for his life, essentially, and he ran into the Ottoman Empire and sought refuge there. He stayed for over four years uh, until the Ottomans finally got tired of his, his intrigues and kind of hosting him, uh, and they sent an army to his encampment uh, on February 1st, 1713, to encourage him to leave, shall we say, which he did. Uh, took him a couple of weeks riding off uh, across Europe, uh, but he and he finally was killed actually in a in a war and during his invasion of Norway uh, in 1718. Very colorful figure. Uh, if you want to check out the the piece, uh, please do. Um, also on February 1st, 1979, Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini returned to Iran after several years in exile, just in time, of course, to seize power. The Shah of Iran had fled the country a couple of weeks previously on uh, January 16th. He left a government in place that was supposed to sort of manage Iran in his absence. Uh, but that government immediately lost popularity because it was identified with the Shah, and the Shah was pretty well hated by this point. Uh, when Khomeini arrived on February 1st, he promised to, uh, well, by one translation, to strike at the mouths of this government with his fists. There's another translation that uh, is a little more graphic. He threatened to kick their teeth in. Uh, that's, the, that's the actual translation. Uh, uh, this government, which was led by Shapur Bakhtiar, uh, kind of tried to manage Khomeini's arrival. Bakhtiar said, don't worry about, you know, Khomeini's like this. He says these, he talks a real tough game, but I'll manage him. Uh, it took about two weeks before Bakhtiar had to resign. Uh, there was some skirmishing between Khomeini's supporters and Bakhtiar's security forces. The security forces didn't really have their hearts in it. Uh, and Bakhtiar's position was quickly, uh, quickly became untenable. Uh, and so he uh, resigned on February 11th and then finally fled the country. Uh, in April, the Iranians assassinated him uh, in 1991. All the way, uh, all the way in 1991, 12 years later. So uh, that's yeah, that's another interesting anniversary. Uh, on February 2nd in 1982, this is the beginning of the Hama massacre, basically a month-long decimation of the city of Hama in Syria by Hafez al-Assad and his brother Rifat al-Assad, uh, who was his top general at the time. Uh, there had been a Muslim Brotherhood uprising in that. city city, uh, and Hafez sent Rifat al-Assad to deal with it. Uh, Rifat invaded the city or entered the city and was repulsed. He was pro pushed out about by the Muslim Brotherhood fighters. And so he spent the next four weeks uh, with artillery just pounding uh, Hama and destroying the city until he was finally, his forces finally entered uh, at the end of the month and flushed out the remaining Muslim Brotherhood fighters, uh, many of whom went into the sewers to try to escape. They poured gasoline down the sewers, uh, lit them on fire. It was just a, a brutal, uh, brutal operation from start to finish. 
Uh, also on February 2nd, 1943, the remnants of the German 6th Army surrendered to the Soviets, ending the Battle of Stalingrad uh, a bit over five months after it started. Uh, the combined Axis Army that attacked Stalingrad suffered upwards of one million casualties, as well as the loss of thousands of vehicles, uh, all the initiative on World War II's Eastern Front, and the sense of ine- inevitability that previous Axis victories had created. Uh, the battle served as a major turning point after which it would be the Red Army, not the Axis, that was on the offensive in the East. Uh, On to the news. In the Middle East, in Yemen, the French military reportedly seized a haul of guns and other armaments in the Gulf of Oman earlier this week. The shipment was presumably bound for the Houthi rebels in northern Yemen, courtesy of Iran. Uh, The interdiction itself is not that big a deal, but uh, as Al-Monitor, Jared Suba at Al-Monitor pointed out uh, in his piece, it is a win for the United States, which has been trying to get European states to assume a greater security role in the Persian Gulf uh, in lieu of the U.S. Fifth Fleet doing all the work, I suppose. One might question why any of these countries, the U.S. included, have taken it upon themselves to provide security in that region, but I digress. Uh, In Turkey, the Turkish Foreign Ministry on Thursday summoned nine Western ambassadors from Belgium, France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Sweden, Switzerland, the United Kingdom, and the United States to complain that their frequent warnings about possible terrorist attacks are hurting Turkey's tourism sector. Each of these countries has either issued a terrorist warning or closed their Istanbul consulate in recent weeks on the basis of, well, it's not entirely clear, actually. Turkish authorities don't seem to have found any evidence of an imminent plot as yet, although they have carried out uh, counterterrorism operations based on information from unnamed allied governments, presumably uh, governments on this list. Turkish Interior Minister Suleyman Soylu, in the time-honored, calm, and non-hyperbolic style common to all Turkish politicians, accused the countries in question of waging, and I'm quoting here, psychological warfare to try to cripple the Turkish economy by scaring tourists away. I think maybe that's a little bit exaggerated, but uh, who am I to say? Uh, In Israel-Palestine, as I think anyone could have predicted, the Israeli military bombed Gaza overnight in response to the rocket that was fired out of that enclave on Wednesday. I have not seen any reports of casualties, but the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine apparently fired another round of rockets out of Gaza in retaliation for the airstrikes, which means another round of airstrikes is probably forthcoming, uh, and there's a chance this situation is about to escalate into a full-fledged conflict. Uh, In Iran, the Iranian government has officially blamed Israel for this week's drone attack on a military manufacturing facility in Isfahan uh, and uh, said it is planning to respond, according to a letter sent to the United Nations by Iran's UN ambassador, Amir Saeed Iravani. Uh, It's unclear what form that response might take, but the Iranians and Israelis have been engaged in a tit-for-tat conflict for a few years now, so it's not like the Iranians haven't had practice at this sort of thing. Meanwhile, there's a piece uh, at Laura Rosen's diplomatic uh, newsletter at Substack. Uh, If you're interested in where things stand on the defunct 2015 Iran nuclear deal, uh, she's been talking to Biden administration officials. Uh, They're apparently saying that they they still would be open to talks. They're blaming the Iranians uh, for rejecting the idea of direct talks on reviving the deal. Uh, They say they're getting mixed messages from Tehran. not, I'm paraphrasing here, but you, you can. Uh, there's, there's a link in the newsletter tonight, and you can click through and read her piece. Uh, basically, they haven't closed the door on uh, negotiations, uh, despite the fact that they 
could have restored this deal on day one of the Biden administration. But sorry, I'm just uh, rehashing bad, uh, bad feelings here. Sorry. Uh, they they say they haven't closed the door on negotiations, but they're waiting for some kind of signal, a clear signal from Iran, and they claim they're not getting one. So that's their story, and they're sticking to it. Uh, in Asia and Afghanistan, the UN World Food Program has reportedly started acquiescing to the Afghan government's uh, restrictions on women in the workplace. For example, they are using exclusively male employees to deliver aid in certain circumstances. The UN is hampered because while it is still employing women, its aid deliveries usually re- rely on local organizations that are subject to the Taliban's decrees. Uh, NGOs that work with the UN are sounding the alarm over this issue because using men exclusively uh, effectively blocks aid access to female-headed households, given that the Taliban also restricts women interacting with men to whom they are not related. Uh, even the Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs at the UN, Martin Griffiths, has, while acknowledging that the U.S. is bending to the, the these new Afghan rules, uh, he's complained that the situation is unacceptable and that it can't continue. I don't know what they're planning to do about it. It doesn't sound like anything. I mean, the choices are uh, don't deliver any aid at all uh, or follow these rules and, and abide by their restrictions. Neither is ideal, I would say. Cutting off aid entirely is probably worse uh, under the circumstances. In the Philippines, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin visited Manila on Thursday, where he and uh, his Philippine counterparts announced an expansion of the U.S.-Philippine Defense Cooperation Agreement. Uh, as expected, the expansion includes U.S. access to four additional Philippine military facilities. Two of those facilities are located in the northern part of Luzon Island, uh, which could come in handy in the event, hypothetically, let's just say, of a U.S. confrontation with China over Taiwan. Uh, the other two facilities are positioned on the disputed South China Sea, where Manila has been increasingly frustrated with regards to overlapping Philippine-Chinese maritime claims. Austin stressed that no part of this expansion was meant to suggest a perma- any permanent U.S. military bases in the Philippines, which be, would be a dicey proposition under Philippine law. It simply means that the U.S. can station men and materiel indefinitely at several Philippine military bases, which is somehow completely different. In China, the U.S. military is reportedly tracking a Chinese spy balloon that entered U.S. airspace over the past couple, sometime over the past couple of days. Uh, U.S. officials at this point are not interested in shooting the device down uh, out of concern about the damage its debris could cause. Uh, they are unsurprisingly uh, being mum, playing mum about where exactly this balloon is, uh, but they reportedly considered shooting it down over Montana, uh, and U.S. Uh, the U.S. intercontinental ballistic missile stockpile is concentrated in Montana, Wyoming, and North Dakota, so it's probably safe to put two and two together here and assume that ICBM facilities are on the balloon's agenda. Uh, in North Korea, uh, earlier this week, Austin visited South Korea, actually, where he announced that the U.S. will deploy additional military aircraft and other strategic assets to South Korea so as to expand, quote, joint training and operational planning, end quote, with the South Korean military. Uh, South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol has been anxious to secure additional U.S. military support, up to and including a return of U.S. nuclear weapons to South Korea. Fortunately, the Biden administration hasn't acquiesced on that particular issue, 
issue, but it's undoubtedly happy to position more assets in South Korea since anything that would be useful in the event of a war with North Korea would also be useful in the event of a war with China. Uh, all this news has, as you might expect, been poorly received in Pyongyang, where the North Korean foreign ministry said on Thursday that, quote, the military and political situation on the Korean peninsula and in the region has reached an extreme red line due to the reckless military confrontational maneuvers and hostile acts of the U.S. and its vassal forces. Uh, tell us how you really feel, I guess. Uh, the U.S. and South Korea carried out joint air drills on Wednesday, which only seems to have further inflamed the situation. In Sudan, Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen visited Khartoum on Thursday and came away with a new promise to move forward with the Abraham Accords normalization agreement between Sudan and Israel. Uh, the timetable, however, is uncertain. Based on comments Cohen made uh, to reporters after returning to Israel, it sounds like any progress is going to wait until Sudan has a civilian government in place. And it's unclear exactly when that might happen. Uh, in Burkina Faso, Burkina Faso's ruling junta has unveiled the Action Plan for Stabilization and Development, a document that's supposed to lay out a roadmap back to civilian rule. Uh, apparently, all the junta needs to do uh, is to, uh, one, defeat jihadist militants, two, solve Burkina Faso's humanitarian problems, three, reform state institutions, and four, oversee a national reconciliation project. I figured they should have that all wrapped up in time for a new election by the year 2223, give or take. Uh, in actuality, the junta has committed to an election next year, uh, so, you know, good luck with that timetable, I guess. In Nigeria, at least one person was killed on Wednesday in an attack on an independent national elect electoral commission office in southeastern Nigeria's Anambra state. Uh, Nigeria is set to hold its general election on February 25th, and I don't think the timing is coincidental. Uh, a significant haul of election material was reportedly destroyed. Uh, there's no indication as to responsibility, but Biafran separatists are generally suspected uh, in any violent incident in that part of Nigeria. There are concerns that INEC offices could be targeted for violence more frequently as the election approaches. In Europe, we'll start in Poland, where according to foreign policy, Eastern NATO members, including Poland, chiefly Poland perhaps, uh, are agitating for the gang to spend more money on their military. So I'll read you the first couple of paragraphs of this piece. A handful of NATO countries are pushing to raise the alliance's defense spending benchmark from 2% to 2.5% or even 3% of member countries' GDP, according to six current and former European and U.S. officials familiar with the matter, a move that could amount to hundreds of billions of dollars in new defense spending if approved. The initiative, pushed in diplomatic circles by Poland and Estonia, is a long shot and may face significant pushback from Western European powers already struggling to meet the existing NATO defense spending benchmark of 2% of GDP. But it reflects a mounting concern among NATO members on the alliance's eastern flank that Europe is ill-equipped ill for a long-term military showdown with Russia in the wake of its invasion of Ukraine last year. Uh, I think... The way that that invasion has gone would say suggest that there's not all that much to be worried about. Uh, actually, we'll get into that uh, in a bit here, but uh, just just my opinion. Uh, in Sweden, a group of 29 U.S. senators wrote a letter to President Joe Biden on Thursday in which, echoing comments earlier this week by Senator Chris Van Hollen from Maryland, they said that they would not support the sale of new F-16s and F-16 modernization kits to Turkey unless, until... The Turkish government approves both Sweden's and Finland's NATO memberships. 
Both the Biden administration and the Turkish government have insisted that the F-16 sale and the NATO issue are not connected. There's there's not much either can do if Congress, in fact, decides to connect them. Uh, That said, 29 senators cannot block this sale. A majority of the Senate would have to vote to block the sale. And if Biden were to exercise his veto, a two-thirds majority would be required to override it. It's unclear, however, whether Biden would be prepared to use his veto in this case. He might just pocket the excuse for not going forward with the with the sale. It remains to be seen. Uh, in Austria, the Austrian government on Thursday expelled four Russian diplomatic personnel, most likely for spying, uh, at least based on the wording of the foreign ministry's statement. Two of them worked at the Russian embassy. The other two worked at uh, as part of the Russian delegation to the UN's Vienna office. Uh, this makes nine Russian diplomatic staff Austria has expelled since 2020. Uh, whether they're uh, there's any link between all nine of them or not is unclear. Uh, the Austrians didn't reveal the identities of the four individuals, but they are confirmed to be below the ambassador level, so nothing quite that significant. Uh, a Russian response is probably forthcoming. In the Americas, in Peru, uh, interim Peruvian president Dina Boluarte has advanced yet another proposal for holding an election this year, this time calling for a vote in October so that a new Congress and a new president could conceivably take office by December. Multiple proposals for a 2023 election have flopped in the Peruvian Congress in recent days, so there's probably not much reason to expect this one will fare any better, but I suppose we will see. Uh, And finally, in the United States, uh, another piece in foreign policy by Rajan Menon and Daniel DePetris, kind of countering what these uh, what this Poland Estonia bloc is saying about the threat posed by a potential Russian invasion in Eastern Europe uh, they argue that right now as the situation stands uh, Europe does not need to be dependent on the United States uh, for its security anymore and the reason is that the Russian invasion has gone so poorly uh, and I'll just read you again a couple of paragraphs out of this piece still nearly a year since the invasion began Russia is still regarded by many as a formidable military power and a dire threat, not only to Ukraine itself, but also to Europe as a whole. This continues to be the predominant lesson drawn from the Russian military's decision to invade what is, the European part of Russia aside, Europe's largest country and land area and one of its most populous. Driving this widespread assumption is the misguided notion that Europe is simply incapable of defending itself without the help of the United States. And that in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the U.S. military presence has to be beefed up, which it has. This belief is pervasive in the corridors of power in Washington and Europe and was reiterated most recently by Finnish Prime Minister Sanamaran in December. This assessment of a Europe rich and technologically advanced but in effect defenseless was compelling for much of the Cold War. Back then, the Soviet Union had a substantial conventional military advantage over Western Europe. Soviet troops were forward deployed all across Soviet-dominated East Eastern Europe, which formed part of the Soviet-led Warsaw Pact, with more than 300,000 Soviet troops stationed in East Germany alone. European economic recovery was also a work in progress. Today, however, this view is flat-out wrong, and the piece goes on to explain why. Uh, chiefly, it's because if Russia gets is going to get bogged down in Ukraine, of all places, uh, it's really unlikely that the Russians would even try to hazard an invasion of NATO territory, let alone that they would be 
be successful, uh, regardless of what the U.S. military posture is. And so there is a compelling argument for Europeans to assume responsibility for their own defense uh, and stop relying on the United States. So that's, uh, I think, an interesting piece. Uh, I hope you uh, check it out. And I want to thank you as we're uh, wrapping up here this evening. Thanks to all of you uh, for reading slash listening to the newsletter. And uh, thanks to those of you who are foreign exchanges subscribers, especially those of you who have made made the leap uh, to become foreign, paid foreign exchanges subscribers. Uh, it is uh, to you that I owe my ability to do this newsletter. So thank you for that. And uh, until next time, take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.